Welcome to episode 53. As always, you can find the podcast on the web at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com. There you'll find links to all the streaming information, uh, as well as social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And on Instagram, you can usually find all the upcoming episodes. Uh, the next few episodes will feature Michael Honch, Grant Johnson, Pat from Moment of Truth, and we'll have a, a bunch of other ones too. Uh, there's also a Patreon now going on, so uh, find the link for that and support the podcast if you can. And uh, we'll be introducing like higher tier incentives real soon. Uh, so yeah, for episode 53, uh, we're going to be talking to Chris Vandeviver. Uh, it's been in a bunch of bands in the early 2000s and you know later on too. And now he's doing some pretty cool stuff with recording. So I'm interested to honestly kind of learn about that kind of stuff a little bit while we talk. So that should be pretty fun. Uh, so I guess with all that being said, how's everything going for you tonight, Chris? Going good, man. Going good. I'm pumped. Thanks yeah, for I'm excited me. to do this, man. Uh, like we were talking about before, I had the idea to do it, and then when I inter- when I interviewed Benny uh, quite a few episodes back there, I was like, now now the the dots are kind of connecting a little bit more, and I kind of want to bring you on and talk about some more stuff, you know? Because I didn't even realize you were kind of doing a lot of this stuff. Like I knew there was like a recording thing going on, but yeah. I didn't realize like the the Benny thing was going on for some reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, I um I purposefully wanted to be in the background on that whole thing. I didn't really want to be in the foreground, but. Ben, it is very much like a, a me and Benny thing now. So I, I think it, he really wants me to be there by his side if uh, we're putting out records and stuff. So I'm, I'm into it. Yeah, that's really cool. I'll have a bunch of questions for that, but I kind of want to do like a timeline type thing for the interview. So I think we'll jump back a little bit. Uh, if you want to talk about like your upbringing and uh, growing up, uh, I think in like the Henrietta area. Yeah, dude. Uh, and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, I very much grew up in the suburbs, you know, like probably like a lot of individuals who have been on the podcast or maybe are going to listen. I just grew up a normal suburban, not at all city lifestyle. So I didn't have much to complain about though. As a kid, I <laughs> I was always wound up about something and um, I don't know. It's pretty carefree. I, I, I lived in Henrietta and maybe the most uh, interesting part of all that is that I met Kevin Mahoney about middle school. And that was uh and even a little before that, I met a, a friend named John Latigas who eventually played in the Flower City Knuckleheads in um, middle school. And he turned me on to Green Day. And that was like a massive moment for me. I, I was always kind of interested in music, but I only had, you know, what was on the radio. And he gave me an introduction to, I don't know, punk rock in general. That was massive for me. And it was around the time Insomniac came out, which is an amazing album. Uh, maybe he goes under the radar as compared to some of their more recent stuff now, but, and then Kevin and I started hanging out and skateboarding together. So that was a, a huge part of our friendship, which then eventually evolved into a band I'm trying to think a lot of my memories are pretty hazy. <laughs> I have a hard time remembering what happened yesterday, but uh, just, we used to skateboard at an elementary school by his house. I used to want go over to his house and we'd skateboard. And then I think it was high school. Kevin had been playing guitar like I think as, as early as when he was able to hold a guitar. So he was very proficient at a pretty uh, young age. I never played music before. I always aspired to, or I always wanted to, cause I thought it was awesome, but I didn't, I didn't have an instrument of any sort. I, I talked my parents into getting me a guitar and it was a crappy Toys R Us, like acoustic guitar with like plastic strings. It made literally no music out of it. It was horrible. <laughs> and Kevin wanted to start a band, I think. And he was like, hey, do you, want, do you want to play bass in this band? Because he knew I had no, you know, experience playing an instrument. So bass was probably a safe bet for me to get into. He played guitar, so it made sense he played guitar. And 
was like, yeah, absolutely. That'd be amazing. So we then needed a drummer. We were going to be a three-piece like MXPX type of thing. I think it was the closest, you know, at our, at our age, I think it was Green Day, MXPX. We were starting to get into the Epitaph stuff. So maybe Mill and Colin was a pretty big influence on Kevin. And we hit up our friend Jeff Hashman in high school. So it's like ninth, 10th grade. And we were like, Jeff, you want to play drums for us? Because he was an amazing drummer. But Jeff, like, as long as I've known the dude, he's always been kind of, he's always been pretty hesitant to commit to bands and stuff. So he was like, "Eh, how about you talk to my friend Mike instead? So we were like, all right. So we asked Mike Thone. And Mike, because he's like this never-ending, just well of enthusiasm for life, he immediately was like, hell yeah, I'd, I'd love to try out. So we maybe got together at Kevin's house uh, in Henrietta, but we ultimately were practicing at Mike's house because Mike lived with his two brothers and dad. Dad was a single dad, um, had an awesome house. Dad was in a, like a metal band and he had a drum riser. He had like the whole thing, like a PA, everything set up in their family room. And it's like, yeah, you guys can practice here. So initially the band was called Just Add Water, which is like the <laughs> most amazing, horrible name. Um, and we played a Water Street Battle of the Bands, the classic Battle of the Band thing. And I'm sure we weren't any good, but uh, that, that started it off. And then it evolved into, we uh, decided on the name Misled Youth because obviously that was way better than Just Add Water. And we were really diving down that fast pop punk thing. And the name must have came from Zero Skateboards and Jamie Thomas and all that stuff, even if we might not have admitted it at the time. And then it eventually evolved into like Mike's older brother, Matt, was into hardcore. And that was the new frontier for music for us. It was just like they were listening to bands like everything diverse from Cap and Jazz to Dead Guy. And that was increasingly becoming of interest to us and because matt and mark who are mike's older brothers they're like kind of hooligans but they're super cool so we we're like kind of watching from afar whatever the hell they're doing and so i think maybe mike was in encouraging us to start exploring our best interpretive dance of hardcore music the best we could muster between the three of us and that's how against the odds we just changed the name again and it had been the three of us the whole time And that's how Against the Odds came to be. And we didn't, we eventually, I guess, were some sort of permutation of Screamo, uh, early Screamo, not the stuff these days, like you and I and and, uh, Seisha and that sort of thing. But we had no clue of any of that stuff. I I got really stuck on Grade, the album, Under the Radar. So that was maybe the closest thing, I mean, the three of us, uh, Mike had introduced us to it. That was probably the closest version of what we thought we were doing at the time and that's when maybe we started to get to get to know you and j25 and you know but we were so young we were we weren't really cool honestly <laughs> but we were at least getting on a couple of shows which was pretty awesome and we were just doing the three-piece thing and mike eventually became the vocalist for the band it was kevin originally kevin singing and then it evolved into mike screaming from the drum set which is pretty awesome. I mean, it's amazing how much he could do at such an early age. He was an artist too, et cetera. Um, I don't know how much you want me to rattle on for, but that's probably all the early his- history stuff. 
I'll jump in with a couple things that uh, connect the dots with that. Uh, first of all, I don't think Matt Thone's name's ever come up on here before. So I just want to say he was always a good dude and, you know, shout yeah. out to him. Rest in peace, obviously. Obviously. Uh, yeah. And then I had a question about the Water Street show and you said he had a bad memory. So if you don't remember it, but it would, it would connect another dot too, though. Uh, was Nobody Cares on that by any chance? Because they play a lot of those battle of bands too. You don't, you don't Maybe. I honestly, the only thing I remember is who won the battle. Oh, well, I remember two bands from it. I remember who won, um, who is a band called Beefeater Gibson. I have no idea who they were. I know nothing about them. They seem like a Red Hot Chili Peppers weird funk fusion thing. Uh, and this other band called Muffin Kitty, who were like, I think Webster or Penfield. I can't remember where, but they were a similar trio pop punk thing and we started palling around with them because we were like whoa they're like us and yeah. um Kristen, oh man what the hell is her name Kristen, i forget her last name but she has been around around the scene a bunch uh todd was the was the vocalist and guitar player and dan kalen was the drummer and they were friends with a band called marius and I, Justin, Dan was also in that band. I forget the other dude's name, but they were like booking their own shows and stuff, which we had no familiarity with. And they were inviting us to play shows and we were trying to reciprocate um, with our own shows. And they were really awesome. They kind of turned us on to the whole thing um, of playing outside of Battle of Bands or high school or whatever. I remember some of those Webster kids, like Justin, I think there was another kid named Ben too. Now, the, yes. era that, the era that I guess I feel like I first met you would have been like 2001. So is that kind of what we're talking about or a little bit before that or? Maybe a little, maybe a tiny bit before it. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, I feel like when, when we started kind of booking you guys more, because I know when I booked the Thursday show, I saw you around there. And then I feel like we started putting you guys on shows. And I know I, know I put you guys on a couple of shows like 2002. I, I, I guess what I didn't realize too, when I was starting to research this interview too, is, is you guys did a split seven inch with Quack Util too, before, before the end of the, the band? Dude, that was, that was like the most legit thing at, you know, up until that point. We had recorded yeah. our own CD or whatever. But yeah, that was Tyler Farron, man. He from building on fire he got kind of into us and that was awesome and then he was like hey i want to do a seven inch and my pals in quacuto like do you want to do it and that was the most i thought you know at that time i was 17 or whatever i was like this i made it this is like this is happening i can't believe it yeah <laughs> and uh that was awesome definitely up um one of my favorite memories of that time yeah it's got to be really cool to have like your first record put out and whatnot you know what i mean like I've never, oh yeah, I, I played in a couple crappy bands in high school, but definitely never anything that ever came out on vinyl. But just having had a record label, I know it was cool. Just like holding the first like piece of vinyl that I was a part of or whatever. So I can imagine like like doing that was pretty cool. But any other any other fond memories stick out from from the time in, in that band? I guess. Oh yeah, I mean we. I mean I saved every flyer from that time. I I don't remember much of who we played with though. I mean, I just remember the shows at St. Joe's. That was a big deal. I, you know, without it seeming like I'm trying to blow smoke up your ass, but like you and J25 and Rory, like once we started getting introduced to hardcore and what was going on, what you guys were putting together, that really opened up the whole like DIY thing in my mind. You know, that was like, whoa, like, I don't know, just putting out records, putting out zines, putting together shows, uh, it, it was a it was a level of sophistication that I was like, wow, this is this could be legit. Maybe not necessarily in a business sense, but yeah, just like a legit 
like musical movement? Anything else positive from it? I mean, just putting out music together with those guys. Uh, it was a lot of fun hanging out with Kevin and Mike in those years. Um, and just being a part of what you guys were doing, really. That was, that was like the big ones. And, and hanging out with Building on Fire. That was super cool when Tyler became, uh, I don't know, into us or whatever. He, he, uh, I, was, I was so jazzed at that time to be hanging out with those dudes. Because like Building on Fire, to me, the bands that really stuck out to me were Building on Fire, The Disaster. I absolutely love that band. They were like Kid Dynamite, but way more antagonizing. And <laughs> like Pieces in particular, his lyrics, his presentation was very much like, he was really nice to me from what I remember at shows. Like I would chat with him and then I would get kicked, you know, by this dude in like heavy boots while they're performing. And the, the whole presentation was just very antagonistic. And I, there was something to that that I liked. I liked how punk um, and melodic it was at the same time and how brief the songs were. Uh, any other bands that stuck out at that time? Building on Fire was just amazing. I loved how how controlled, how controlled and noisy they were at the same time. They have they had a lot of melodic bits on that blueprint for a was it blueprint for a space romance? Yeah, is that what it is? Yeah, yep. I can't really remember too many other bands. Dan Danger, that that dude, remember him at the Perkins Apartments? Yeah. He started letting us play, or him and his, uh, I forget the other dude he lived with, but they started letting us play at their apartment, and that was cool. It felt like we were making inroads with a lot of um, cool venues and people uh, for a band that was pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Dan Danger dude was cool, and it's cool to see, obviously, what he's what he's been able to do with like his artwork and shit, man, you know? Like, I don't know if you've been following, he's like been... Oh done the last few years and stuff it's just crazy to see all that stuff you know did you guys do like any out of town or like any touring or anything i know it was like a first band so you know a but. tiny bit yeah a tiny bit like we played um we did like a weekend uh and dan danger actually booked us a show he was like off from college back in massachusetts and he agreed to get us a show at this art space in in mass but i think we probably played i don't know rochester mass Syracuse maybe I don't really remember but that we did that we played in Endicott New York at a fest that was really weird um we were out of town it was super late it was like this festival with a million bands as as we did back in those days and <laughs> and we were like the second to last band everybody's about to leave but the last band is like the hometown hero band so everybody wants to see them. So all these kids are asking us like, hey, would you mind playing last? Because I'm here for this band and then I'm, I'm out of here. And, I was, and we were like, no, that's ridiculous. Like we got to drive three or four hours home. We're tired. We want to play like to someone. And everybody was so upset with us that they, ref they stood outside and refused to come in and watch us until their hometown hero and the and that band was so cool they were like yeah. i couldn't tell you who they were anymore but they're like yo you're from out of town you you got to get on the road just you know play your set and all yeah. good they were totally cool about it but their fans hated us for that but um beyond that maybe i don't think we did much outside of rochester that's a pretty crazy memory to have though i never heard of any show <laughs> like that happening before with yeah the, the worst stories are always the best ones to retell yeah yeah, no, those are usually the ones that, that stand out, I guess, too. Uh, yeah, well, they just make for funny memories. Yeah. 
I guess jumping into the next panel, unless you have more to more to throw in with with a uh, against the odds. I I didn't even realize. I guess it's a, again, it's a bad memory for me too. Were you were you in the Awakening slash American Murder Story the whole time, or because I guess I just kind of forgot. Like if so, I I think probably. I I mean like Brian, Kyle, Steve, and um, wait, Brian, Kyle, Steve. Who the hell was the other member? I don't know. Those guys started hanging out yeah. and playing together. Maybe it yeah. was just the three of them, but if if they were a band before I was in it, it was for a very short period of time before yeah. I was in it because they were rehearsing at Kyle's house. Yeah. Um, Kyle Brennan, Steve Gilman, uh, Brian McCarthy, all awesome people. And they were like, hey, you want to play bass in our band? You're like the bass dude. And okay, yeah, sure. And I started rehearsing with them and that sort of form of hardcore because they were very much Kyle was probably very much into youth of today, gorilla biscuits, all that stuff. And that's that sort of thing I wasn't so into. And I was in against the odds. So I was like, that was very much like my main gig. And but it was kind of fun to hang out with a new group of people. I think Tom Zenz maybe ended up in a, in American Murder Story. I can't remember but i feel like he was i feel like he ended up being a fifth member but we were hanging out at kyle's rehearsing once a week maybe played a couple shows and eventually decided the awakening which is like a classic hardcore name but decided it wasn't cool enough and american nightmare was like you know number one amazing but number two very much in their prime at that time so i think wanted to sort of emulate at least the the cool factor (laughs) of that band in some way so i think i was pushing for that name pretty hard to get away from the awakening but um yeah i can't really remember much i'm i'm ter- i'm a terrible interviewee because i don't remember a lot these days but yeah i booked you i booked you guys a couple times and i don't have a ton of memories from that band either but i mean i know i i partied pretty hard with steve gilman like during the, yeah. the tail end of that era he had that apartment on oxford street and those were some wild uh some wild times so that might be have, having some memory issues right there too because of those years but but i guess so yeah tom zenz and that's 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 another henrietta connection too man that's somebody that 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 was that i was uh chilling with a lot back then too and so were all these bands like kind of like happening like we're all around the same time like i know you said against the odds you were in during this time too because then you said like trin city too like and i feel like that was like 2003 like yeah it, 2004 too so it must have all been around the same time period too then right Pretty much. Um, I had to have been in 10th grade, I think, when Against the Odds started, or, you know, its original version started pop um, happening for the three of us. Excuse me. And The Awakening, I think, was towards the end of high school. So maybe like 12, 11th or 12th grade. And then Trinity. Trinity happened after um, Against the Odds. Kevin, so at the tail end of high school, Kevin and I, for whatever reason, decided, uh, well, actually, Rob Magnanti, I should mention that, Rob, we started thinking about maybe having a second guitar player, and Rob Magnanti was the dude who, who approached us and said he was interested, which was pretty interesting, because he was in Borrowed Time, right? Something he was like sacred, an older, still kind yeah, of something sacred, kind of yeah, excuse me. Yeah. So he was like an older dude compared to us. So it was like, whoa, that's, that's kind of crazy. And, and then the band just started to kind of fizzle out from that point on. Kevin and I, for whatever reason at the time, felt like we needed to kick Mike out of the band, which was ridiculous because Mike 
maybe it might have been the most important member to the band <laughs> at that time. Like he was such a source of um, inspiration and motivation and his, his family let us practice there for years. So that was weird. But eventually the band sort of fell apart because we couldn't find another drummer after that. And Kevin got into Nobody Cares. So Nobody Cares starts to become significantly more important in Kevin's life. And Vinnie Minervino ending up in the band, I mean, just propels it to a new level. I don't know if they had switched to Rose the Red by that point. I think it was still Nobody Cares, but it was like clearly there were dudes who were um, invested in trying to make something of that band. They're starting to do weekend tours or whatever. So Kevin's like really focused in on that. Against the Odds falls, um, disappears, and I'm pretty bummed out about it. But Kevin and I are like living together for years and years. I live with his family for years, but Kevin and I had our own apartment at the time and I was working a terrible job, like working overnights at a gas station for who knows what reason. And Tom Zenz, I think, approached me about playing in Trin City and I wasn't in the least bit interested. I love Tom. Tom's an amazing, you know, I I haven't seen him or talked to him in so long. I hope he's well and I hope that someday I'll I'll get to change hang out with him because he's awesome and hilarious uh but tom approached me and i knew he was into like the early november rufio all that stuff all that stuff which i have zero interest in at that time and still to this day i have zero interest in and i was talking to kevin we're hanging out in our apartment he's in nobody cares and i'm talking to him about him like i don't know should i and he's just like what else are you doing like, besides working at a gas station, what else you got going on? Like, why not do it? It's like, that's a pretty compelling point. So maybe I will give it a try. So I started hanging out with Tom for a couple of years and he's writing songs and he, and he puts together this band with, was it Jeremy, Jeremy Burke, otherwise known as Boner as the vocalist, uh, Andy Champion, who's a kid that we went to school with. I think it was a year or two younger than us on bass. I'm playing guitar at that point because I, I sort of always had a love-hate thing with playing the bass. I always thought it was, it was like the less cool version of playing guitar. So I wanted to get away from bass as quickly as I could, which is funny because now I think bass is way cooler, but that's how it goes. I can't remember. Oh, I do. I see his face. I think his name is maybe Josh. He was the drummer. He was a kid who lived out in like, honey or your mendon or something and we used to practice in his parents barn i see his face i can't remember his name though but anyway so tom puts together this band he's very much aspiring to do that drive-through pop punk whatever sound and i'm sort of begrudging i think tom is awesome i think most i think everybody in the band's awesome but i'm not that interested in the music but we start playing shows and you know i want to be very clear as we move through this interview like uh I think all these people are great. At the time, I was not the most functioning young adult and I had beef with a lot of people <laughs> through the years because I was learning how to be a, a, um, a, a good citizen. So Jeremy, I kind of had a love-hate relationship with Jeremy where he's just a goofy guy. He's, he's goofy. He's the life of the party. People love him. And I always kind of felt like, you know, I'm here to fucking make music. Excuse me. I'm here to make music. Like I'm here because I'm serious about it. And who's this dude? But Jeremy is like the reason anybody cared about that band. Like 
people love Jeremy, so they love Twin City Sunrise. So we play like at the Penny Arcade stuff that probably you weren't booking, you know, but the place would be packed because of that kid. It was crazy. And so we, I played some of the coolest shows with those dudes. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and then we put out ACD, I think. I, we, went, we went to Hopewell recording against the odds. Went to Hopewell to it, I think, at one or two points. The Awakening. Everybody went through Hopewell for that period of time in Canandaigua. Um, with Dave Drago and Jake, I think was his name. Um, yeah. Yeah, I forget who I interviewed recently. I was just talking about that studio. It was like, I can't remember who, but I'm, I'm sure a couple other people have brought it up too. Um, I did do one show with Trin City. It was uh, like Glass Eater and maybe Evergreen Terrace. Oh, was that at that Steel was the Music Hall? No, that was at the Penny Arcade. Uh, Jeremy really? probably would have done the stores of the Steel. I don't think I ever did anything at Steel because of the, they always seem kind of shady from what other people said. I never, I never had any bad dealings with those dudes personally because I never really worked with them. But just from what I heard, I was like, I don't, I don't want to get, get to get too into those dudes. I already was doing shit with the Penny Arcade anyway. So yeah, yeah. we were, um, I forgot all about that. Um, all those dudes in both those bands were super nice to us, which is, which is a telling indication, I think of any touring band, if you're willing to be kind and cool to the local band who, you know, who knows if they're any good or not. I think that's pretty awesome. And we, we did play at steel music hall a lot because that dude, Randy over there, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was actually cool, but he was always booking these shows and always bringing in the same sort of rotation. So it'd be like us, it would be Renoff. Um, ooh, I can, I can see their name in my head sort of, uh, damn. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. I'm trying to remember some of these bands from that time. Uh, I can't remember, but us and Renoff, I do remember those dudes. We were in a constant rotation over there. Yeah. I know. I, I, I remember Jeremy picked me up from work one night and brought me to a couple, one of those shows. And, and that was the thing with those places too. That was, those shows were always packed too. Like you talking about the Penny Arcade, like yeah. show at Steel and that place was always packed too. So it was, yeah, it and, was, it was a weird dungeony place. Yeah. They had a weird dance hall in the back that like had the rotating floor. And it's weird. Cause there was like that, that was like a whole separate scene for the most part. Like that wasn't like the, like the scene that we were just talking about, like the, shows that john 25 and i were booking like there was a few kids probably from that scene but for the most part it was like kind of that whole like i don't know if it was henrietta or just people that were down with those bands you know but yeah, i always kind of wanted i always kind of wondered like about like doing something to, to and maybe jeremy did it later because it seems like he would have but like a show that like brought all those kind of bands and scenes together because it seemed like that would have been popping off pretty good back then you know yeah yeah I honestly, I lived through it and I have no idea how any of it came to be. I think just uh, Steel Music Hall and that dude Randy maybe hit on a Friday night thing where it just yeah. all these kids had a place they could count on to go to all the time. So that was the place they went to and it was kind of dicey and weird, uh, which maybe lent itself to being a teenager or a late teenager or whatever. So then with, with Verona, was that... That was with Tom Zenz too, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember what kind of caused Trin City to, to, to go to the wayside. But I know Tom wanted to start another band and he wanted me involved. And that was awesome because I thought Tom was awesome. So we, he, 
we maybe put together the band Verona, which was Travis Rankin, Tom Bowman originally, and Craig Waters, who Craig played in. Oh, Silhouette was one of the bands I was trying to think of. I think they played at Steel Music Hall, so I'm going back now. But anyways, Craig Waters was pals with those guys. And just, I feel like Tom probably facilitated a lot of this. We started rehearsing in a practice space behind Water Street Music Hall that Craig Waters had. And it was, it was so funny because it was right behind Water Street, which was pretty cool. I mean, for the types of bands that maybe we were interested in at the time of playing alongside with. And this Italian dude owned the building. And that's not really important to the story, but it's, it's interesting because this dude was really short, bald, skinny, glasses, and he would hang out behind the building, in the back of the building, where we would go into this like cellar door type of situation and go to the rehearsal space. And one year, nothing rehearsed across the hall from us, who eventually became the Sunstreak. So that was like another band of that genre or whatever. So anyways, this dude had a black van with no windows, unmarked. And periodically, every couple months, he would kick in the door of our practice space and start shouting at us and like accusing us of partying or whatever. Down there. <laughs> it was amazing because he would get so mad. And then Craig, being uh, like an adult, would somehow talk this dude off the ledge of like wanting to kick us out, even though we never were partying in there. That dude was nuts. I don't know. It was just a funny, funny time. But anyways, we started Verona. Tom's writing the songs because I'm not really a functional songwriter all up until this point. Like any songwriting in the band with Kevin Mahoney and Mike Thone was really just Kevin. Mike starts to throw his hat into the ring. And I think that might've been some source of, of, um, I don't know, irritation maybe to Kevin. Cause Kevin was very prideful of his songs, songwriting at the time. And then moving into like the awakening, that's Kyle, and Brian probably writing the songs. Trin City, it's Tom. Verona, it's Tom. I'm starting to dabble now because I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling like maybe I could contribute something in the songwriting department. But I always was like, just tell me what to play and I'll play it. Just Tom's writing the songs. Travis is writing lyrics. And Brian and Sean McCarthy decide that they want to start a record label. And it's like right at the inception of Verona. And it's called Round Two Records. And they're like, we want to put out your record first for round two. Like, all right, sick. That's awesome. Um, so they send us to Watchmen in Lockport. And we stayed there for a week. And those dudes paid for the whole recording, the whole pressing. That was the first time. I, I guess, you know, obviously the second time because Tyler Farron paid for that one record. But this was kind of legit. We stayed with, um, we stayed with uh, a friend of Tom's in Buffalo so we could record that album. And Doug White is, you know, this wealth of history and fascinating stories. And he's got this awesome studio. And that was the time that I remember sitting on the couch in the control room, looking around, just like, I could do this all day long. This is the best. I like playing shows is cool, but this is awesome. Just hanging out, making music. So that kind of put the bug in my head, except for the fact that I was like, this place must cost a fortune to get all this gear. And I'm never going to have that kind of loot because I'm working overnights at a Sunoco. I'm working overnights at a Tim Hortons, working the worst jobs. But that was pretty cool. And that, that was a band Verona morphed into, 
I dream her eventually, but Verona is starting to play out of town. We're like playing, um, booking shows out of town, playing in Buffalo, Syracuse, Pennsylvania, maybe. And that's when I start getting my real taste of playing out of town. And that's super cool. And Verona, I think, uh, definitely lasted longer than Trid City. I think Trid City maybe lasted a year, if that. I remember you guys doing Verona, but I guess I kind of forgot. And again, we, we both don't have the best of memories, I guess. But my, <laughs> mine seems to be a little worse with this one. I, 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 don't, I didn't remember the connection with the McCarthy brothers there with the round two either. Well, so was that luck- pretty good? Were the CD do pretty good then? Or like, because you guys were doing out-of-town shows, it sounds like, and stuff too then. Like, so. I mean, a lot of this stuff, I don't know if we did pretty good. I, I think it was just a force of will, you know? That, that's like... Um, when we get into Sakes Alive, Sakes Alive is entirely a force of will where I'm like, I want this to be my thing that I do. So I'm going to make it happen. And I literally did everything in that band. Uh, uh, Not because anybody didn't want to contribute. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but because I was just like, this is going to happen. And I think that's, I think the Verona CDs did okay. We had the good fortune of going to high school, you know, with Brian and I was in a band with Brian in The Awakening. Uh, so we we were pals with those guys. And I think for them, it was just like, they had some extra money to throw around for some reason, maybe because Sean was in the military. Yeah. I don't know why that would be an important detail, but I feel like maybe he was getting paid. Okay. Yeah. And he just decided I want to put out a record. So they decided they're going to do a label. Yeah. They put a few records out too. So they put, I want to yeah. say at least three or four. Uh, uh, Sean's definitely somebody I want to get on the podcast. I mean, you honestly just rattled off like four or five names of people just in Verona alone that uh, Tom Bullman, someone I've talked back and forth with about getting on here at some point. And I mean, he's doing really crazy shit now with yeah. shoes and everything else, you know, um, Travis is somebody who would be cool to talk to too, man. He he's was in tons of cool Rochester bands, you know, and uh you know, so, and obviously talking about Verona too. Um, yeah, Travis is, um, Travis is a, a remarkable human being. I think he, he is very philosophical. He's got a lot of big ideas, a lot, or I mean, a lot of big thoughts all the time. And, um, and he really lives and breathes his creativity. Uh, so that again, like I, for the timeline, I'm going from, you know, my late teens to my early 20s. And Travis was a dude who, I don't know if he's that much older than me, but, you know, when you're in, in that age bracket in a band, it's like, whoa, this dude who's older than me, who's been doing things like arm's length or whatever, wants to play in a band with me. That's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't believe it. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty cool. I like Travis. Travis is awesome. Yeah, I'm 40 and I feel like Travis and going back to Rob... Rob Magnanti there, him and I, yeah. then two of them, are all, we're all about, about the same age. So, and then I guess backtracking a little bit to somebody else who I really want to get on the podcast and I'm just throwing this out there for anybody who's listening. You mentioned pieces earlier. Anybody who's in contact with him, uh, enterprise hardcore podcast at gmail.com. Uh, tell him to get a hold of me. I definitely want to get him on here uh, whenever I'll, I'll clear the schedule for him anytime. So uh, that yeah. dude, fucking awesome. You know, did, did so. you go to the milestones last show? No, I think I can't remember what I was doing. I want to say I was out of town that week. I don't know if I was in like Toronto or somewhere. I, I had something else planned that weekend. I should have just canceled the plans and gone to that instead. I can imagine it was a pretty wild show. Oh, I mean, it was awesome. I, I it's just you know, it was their last show. Jimmy Stat, I think, maybe had just joined the band. He joined in time for the last show. But I remember thinking, like, this band should be playing here. 
this is awesome. It, it feels like something, um, not that the St. Joe's or anything like any of those other shows were insignificant, but I don't know. I really liked, I really liked seeing, I don't know, an antagonizing punk band on the milestone stage <laughs> doing their thing. That was cool. Yeah, no, he's definitely a good dude and somebody I would love to uh, chat with at some point. So now I guess we're still sticking with, with Tom Zenz with iDreamer then too, right? Like, did you guys end yeah. up doing bands for quite a few years then? Or Yeah, yeah, that, that was the case. We went through this like, I don't know, we were very eager to kick people out of the band all the time. <laughs> we, we had, I don't know what it was, but um, who was it? Tom Bowman eventually left. And he was replaced by our pal, Andy Champion, that was in Trin City. And that was awesome. I mean, Tom's awesome. Andy's awesome. Uh, our, our reasons to do that probably were, were uh, selfish for some reason or another. But, and then I can't remember if Craig just, I, I feel like Craig had to start focusing on his actual life because he, he has like, he owns a home. He's got a wife. They're probably talking about kids. He's got a job. And maybe hanging out with band dudes in the, you know, in the evenings is maybe not on that trajectory for him and his wife. Uh, who ended up playing drums, though? We also kicked out Travis, which was kind of ridiculous. That was stupid. Uh, but Kevin Mahoney ended up in the band as the vocalist. So that was, you know, we're trading one good vibe for another under unsavory circumstances. <laughs> so... Uh, who I, I feel like I know this uh, dude named Dave Goble played drums for us on a tour because we're like still trying to make the tour thing and we're we're releasing our own music not with round two because I think maybe Sean and Brian were focused on other things maybe they were being a little more budget conscious with their funds but Dave, but we were releasing our own music we went back to Watchmen to record I think with Travis and then we recorded at where Brian Moore was at the pickle factory in Medina. Um, Red, I don't know if it was Red Booth. It was Viking studio at the time. So we recorded there with Brian. Maybe at the very early stages of Brian getting into recording and mixing and stuff. And we're just touring Kevin, Andy, Tom, myself, and Dave Goble. Uh, Bob O'Neill actually played for us too. He was in, what was the Syracuse band everybody loved? Another Breath? Yeah. He was the drummer and then he played in Polar Bear Club. Yeah. Very early on, he had like yeah. the kick drum from SJC that was like a double length kick drum. So when you, <laughs> I remember him, I remember they played at a lodge and he like hit his kick drum and I literally watched people just like it pushed, like get shoved because of the air that shot yeah. out of that thing. It was awesome. That's cool. So Bob played for us uh, for a tour or two and then Dave Goble and I don't know. We were just trying to, we were just trying to make it happen. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily say it was like career focused, but you know, playing in a rock band with your friends, you want something cool to happen. And Kevin, so Kevin must've been transitioning out of Roses Are Red or I think Kevin left Roses Are Red ended up back in the band at that yeah, point. Yeah, at some point. Yeah. So. I guess you speaking see, of that. You, you mentioned, sorry to cut you off, but you mentioned and that yeah. makes me think too. I know there was a period where Tom was in Roses Are Red too. Was that during any of the periods where you guys were making music or was that like a, a separate time period? It was at the tail end of the Verona I Dreamer thing. Because 
Kevin left Roses Are Red and I don't want to put words in his mouth because again, my memory's hazy, yeah. but I'm pretty sure he was getting kind of like unhappy with the creative direction of the band. So he was starting to dabble and that's where I think he came into I Dreamer, Verona. He was starting to dabble with other, with other things creatively. And then eventually ended up just going back to Rose Red because I think it was the most uh, promising of the two in terms of like doing stuff. And then Tom, they, and then Rose Red started shifting people around because uh, Brian and Matt, right? I think they left. So they had some voids they had to fill on guitars. So Tom got into that. He was like, well, here's my opportunity, you know, for, for something, for something bigger. So he's, he went for it. And Andy Champion, I think, even went into it too. Yeah, I think maybe. so. Yeah. So around that time, I got kicked out. It was my turn to get kicked out of the band. <laughs> so they kicked me out because I think I was just being, for whatever reason, you know, just uh, being disagreeable or whatever. So they kicked me out. And around that time, I don't know if I'm going too fast, but, or, but when I got kicked out, I'm living I'm living in Greece in a horrible apartment, working overnight still for some reason. And I was very sore about being kicked out. And I was like, why was I in this slew of bands? I didn't like any of the influences. Like, I mean, I thought we were cool. I liked the people. I liked what we were doing. But the, in, the, the influences on the songwriting, it's like, I don't care about any of that stuff. I was just kind of along for the ride. So I was reflecting on how much I love bands from like Jade Tree, like Trial by Fire, Kid Dynamite, Peanut Black, um, and other stuff, Fat Records, whatever. And I'm like, I'm gonna, I want to start a punk band. That's what I'm, that's what I got into this for. So I'm gonna do it. And that's where Six Alive started to manifest in my head. So were you still playing? I mean, I guess you said you got kicked out of I Dreamer, but like, were you, were you already like? Because, because you pretty much wrote a lot of the Six. Did you do all the Six Alive stuff yourself in the beginning? Yeah. So, like, I guess what I'm asking then is, like, mm -hmm. when you were still, like, in I Dreamer, were you already kind of, like, putting the songs together in your head or, like, write, like writing stuff for it? Or did this happen, like, completely after I Dreamer? No, it happened right after I Dreamer. Yeah. And, and I started to rehearse pretty quickly with, uh, do you know Jeff Kanopka? He was yeah. in, yeah, Jeff Kanopka. I got him on board. Brian McCarthy, who was in round two, who was in The, Wait, the Awakening. And Mike Thone, who was the drummer from Against the Odds. And I was like, I want to start a punk band. I want it to be fast. I want it to be melodic. I want it to be screamy. And they were like, cool. And we rehearsed for about a month or two. I wrote all the songs and they were totally on board with that. We played a lodge show. I almost feel like it was the first Polar Bear Club show. And we were terrible. Like not, not a reflection on the band, the songwriting, the songs that I had written were awful, just terrible. And I could see it. I could see it in like the way people were reacting. And that made me go like, okay, I should probably like learn how to write a song before I get any further down this road. Cause again, up until this point, I hadn't written much music. I maybe wrote a song for Verona. Um, so that I immediately kind of, you know, got introverted again, you know, kind of recessed into my creative cave to try to figure out how to write a song that maybe is pretty good <laughs> and then it turned into who was it in that first iteration kevin mahoney actually him and my buddy jeff hashman that i referenced regarding against the odds they helped me record the demo in syracuse with kate albert 
Kate Alberts, she was a girl that went to a lot of shows around that early 2000 time. She was Syracuse maybe, but she recorded us at Moore Sound where Jocko owns a studio and she was working out of there and she recorded the Six Alive demo and that was awesome. Kevin, hanging with Kevin and Jeff for a couple of days, that was really cool and they played a first show with me and um, my buddy Tim Williams. He played guitar, not for the recording, but for that first show, which was in the basement of uh, Sean Reamer and his wife, Nicole. They were living in a house on like Winton Road or something in the city. And they let us play their basement. And I made like a whole thing out of it. I sent invites to people. Like I made it really kind of cryptic because nobody knew what the hell Six Alive was. And that was a cool show. There was a good smattering of people. And I, I, I think Sakes Alive benefited the most from, I guess, salesmanship or marketing because <laughs> I was very much, um, I think, pretty savvy in that department when it came to that band, to getting people on board and interested in it, uh, at least from far away. Uh, before I forget, we'll, we'll, we'll be jumping into recording in a little bit too, obviously. Now, you had kind of referenced getting interested in that uh, recording uh, previously with Verona, but my question is, uh, with with Kevin Mahoney being doing all that stuff now too, I never really thought about that until I was putting the outline together tonight. Like, did you guys like have an influence on each other to get into this stuff, or like was it kind of totally separate? Well, we must have because um, so I'm I'm not really referencing dates because you know I'm, they yeah. don't come across to me, but I'm like living with Kevin through all of these iterations of bands, except for Sakes Alive. I I lived with Kevin. We had an apartment together. Then he moved back in with his folks because some circumstances that were unfortunate. His, uh, he moved back in with his folks and they were like, hey, do you want to move in too? And we're going to like build you like an apartment in the top of the house. And I was like, okay, that sounds awesome. So I lived with them for a while. And then I moved out because uh, they needed to make room for a family member. And then I moved back in and I was with Kevin pretty much nonstop for many years. And we started purchasing... I guess like basic recording equipment, Kevin was into, Kevin had like a four track or an eight track or something really simple that he was recording demos to for songs. And he would spend like all day up in his room, just like I'm writing songs today. So like, don't anybody talk to me. <laughs> and so he'd be up there writing songs for like days by himself um, in his pajamas, you know, just with his guitar. And that started to probably rub off on me. Sakes Alive I mean, this kind of bridges into Sakes Alive, but I'm trying to think of the timeline, but I, I'm starting to get the idea to record more seriously for Sakes Alive because Sakes Alive was a kind of a hard and fast experience. It was like three years of like quite, when you think of a bands being like, I'm partying all the time on the road, that was Sakes Alive. It was like me, dad, and then four dudes who just wanted, four or five dudes who wanted to party the whole time. And, uh, once, once Sakes Alive started sputtering off of its wheels, I was like, okay, I need to be creative in some fashion. Maybe I'll get into recording so I can record my own music. Um, but back to the question, I, I'm sure because Kevin was recording his own stuff in a very basic way and we're living together and I'm starting to acquire recording equipment like monitors and an interface. And he, uh, he would record demos on my laptop and maybe kind of swapping back and forth in terms of inspiration or motivation. I guess sticking with Sakes Alive, though, uh, you guys, uh, you, like you're, you're referencing, you guys ended up doing quite a bit of touring. I mean, obviously, I had Moose on well, not, not that long ago, like within the last yeah. month. So there's a notorious amount of stories there, I'm sure, that, that you would have that probably aren't, aren't uh, 
you know, suitable even for this podcast, yeah. but, um, but no, I mean, what would you, what you, what'd you release at least like two, seven inches too, right? Like, so you did quite a bit with that band, right? Like, I guess did a demo, like, yeah. did a demo. Yeah. So I recorded the demo with Kevin and Jeff as just like temporary, like they weren't planning on being members. They were just helping me out with, uh, and I think I moved out of Kevin's house by that time I was living on my own and, um, or maybe I moved back in, but we, we reconnected after the whole Verona I dreamer thing. And once I had the demo in my hands, I was like, okay, I'm going to find band members with this thing. I'm like, this is very much like I'm going to will this thing into existence and it's going to be a band. It's going to tour. It's going to do cool stuff. And that's how I found Tim Williams, who Tim Williams actually, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Tim. Yeah. Um, he grew up in Penfield and his mom and my mom are both deaf and they were pals for years and years and years and years. So I've known Tim forever and he's much younger than I am. So he was always, you know, just the little kid in the room that, you know, maybe I hung out with or whatever. But I think when I started putting the feelers out for sakes, he reached out to me and then his buddy, Mike Schwartz was kind of part of the package. So we started rehearsing together, but then it kind of morphed into like Tom Bowman played in sakes alive in the early iterations. It was Tim Williams Tom Bowman and I think BC Mostyn or Rob, Rob Moyston. He's a, he's a dude who, man, what was he in? He hung out with like Travis Johansson and he's really into the Nintendo chiptunes thing for a while. He played drums originally and then he played bass and then he eventually left the band. So Tom played, Tom Bowman played bass, Tim plays guitar. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to reconnect the stories in my head or reconnect the, the timeline in my head. But I found essentially a group of people that were willing to hang out with me, which eventually formed Tim, Mike on bass, and Dave O'Connor, who's a dude from Bergen who worked at Guitar Center in Henrietta. And none of us knew Dave at the time. I just through the grapevine heard about this drummer who maybe was cool and maybe would play in, our, in my band that worked at Guitar Center. So I went to Guitar Center. I found him and I said, hey, do you want to play in a band? He's like, okay, yeah, whatever. Cool. So I got the group together. We did a couple of shows and then I got us on Fest 7, I think, in Gainesville. And this was totally like, I got Sakes Alive enough word of mouth through punknews.org. I think specifically through that website that some folks at Fest were like, oh, we've, we've heard of this band and maybe we're like, yeah, we could, they could play somewhere at Fest. And that was our first tour. And that was a pretty short timeline, maybe a couple months from demo to finding band members to doing a tour down to Fest and back in Gainesville. And those dudes that you referenced before, like they, those are the ones that toured down, the, down there with you and back to the, to, for that first tour? Yeah. I, maybe Mike didn't go with us. I think we got this dude named Josh who lived in Buffalo to play bass. I know that for a fact yeah. that Josh, um, uh, I, I cannot remember his last name. I hope Moose will <laughs> somehow contribute to this in the comment section, but because I know he'll remember, but he played bass for us. Tim played guitar. Dave O'Connor played drums and we played actually like on a pretty cool club on the main strip at Gainesville. We actually had like a packed, like a relatively packed 
uh, crowd for our set, which was pretty cool for a band that quite literally nobody knew about a couple months ago because it didn't exist. And I reached out to punknews.org and a couple of these other punk websites at the time that were very prominent in their heyday. And I just hit everybody up on the website and I said, hey, here's the deal. I have a band. I put out a record. Can I just send you the record? I don't care if you review it. I don't care if you do anything. You could throw it out the window for all I care. I just want to send it to you. And if, um, and if you're you know, kind enough, will you maybe listen to a couple of seconds of it? And if you're really kind, will you just give me some feedback on it? Like if you like it, do you not like it, whatever. And that was like enough to get my foot into the door on that website with those like uh, reporters or reviewers or whatever. So they reviewed the demo and they said, Hey, like, this is kind of cool. This is actually cool. And I said, and I also asked them if they were going to review it, which they agreed to like, Hey, will you tell, um, will you put in the article that if anybody emails me their home address, I'll send them a demo for free. And they, they did it. So I got like a hundred people hitting me up for demos and this demo, I, I got I to gotta pat myself on the back because I, I reached out to Stan Dahl, who is the drummer from Lords, who is a graphic artist, who I thought he made amazing artwork. I love the stuff he did for Lords and other bands. And I, I had to hunt him down because he didn't really have a good website or anything at the time. And I, I hit him up and I said, will you do like a layout for my, for my demo? And he said, sure. And I, I hired him and he did like a three panel layout that folded over. So when somebody got the record in the mail, they got like a CD, stickers, pins, whatever. And they got this gatefold, you know, even though it's on a CDR, they got this gatefold thing that looked amazing for, you know, I don't know if the music matched up with the, uh, with the artwork, but it looked awesome. So all these kind of pieces melded together in a good way to get us down to fest. I don't know where the timeline matches up with all this, but one of my favorite <laughs> local shows from that era uh, is, is, is around this time, like 2000, maybe 2009 actually, but it was at uh, Elixir. I think Paul from the way we carry, well, I don't know what band he was in at the time, but, but he booked it. Cause when he, when he's on here, he told me he's the one to put it together, but it was like, you guys, I feel like you guys played uh, sirens and sailors played. Uh, you remember a show like that at Elixir on Clinton Ave? And Clinton like guys, them tugboat tugboat and, and Paul probably would have played would have closed the night out probably knowing them, you know. Wait, was uh, it where the heck where was Elixir? Right on Clinton and Goodman. I don't know what it is now. It was like like a bunch of right across the street from the cinema. That little yes, little the the angry goat place. now or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's probably what it's called now. Yeah, that tiny ass place. Like those yeah, bands, I remember that place. That was an awesome show. Yeah, yeah, that was a real fun night too. And, and those shows were always notorious. But that was just like. Again, what I was going back to before, like I feel like that was like one of those nights where like it was a real diverse mix of bands. You know, it wasn't like I know, you know. we played with um the Minor Times there too. I I don't yeah. know if that was that show. Uh, I'm not sure if they played that one or not, but those guys were always a good time too. They played they I know we we put them on a different show there too, so they they played there a couple times, and uh, yeah, they, those were always a good time though. But um, yeah, what other what other uh other, like are there a lot of good other local uh show memories from from the Sakes Live era for you? We played, let's see, we played with Lords at, I don't think Stan was in the band at that time, but we played with Lords at Boulder Coffee. Did you, did you book that show? Do you remember being at that show? That no, was awesome. Like, that was ridiculous. Yeah. I was <laughs> at a different show. So I feel like I was at a different show you guys played at Boulder. I don't think I was ever at a Lords show, but I could be wrong. But. That was awesome. Um, 
I booked Young Livers, which is a, um, a no idea band. They were on tour and I booked them in Rochester uh, at the Dublin Underground, which is kind of an interesting spot. I don't know if I loved it, but I, but it was a tiny spot. So you only needed a couple people to make it feel, you know, significant. That was a lot of fun. Um, trying to think I can, I can recall a lot of shows that I don't know if I played, but that were awesome. Like going back a ways. Did you book a city of Caterpillar show? Or was that J25? I think John booked that one. Was that at, uh, that lodge, the same lodge I booked the Thursday show at probably that, that, uh, that Brighton Park. That's where they played at, right? Well, page 99 too, right? That was page 99. Oh, do they, play, that was, do they play a different show here too? Yeah, they put, so the page 99 show, that was, I mean, this has nothing to do with me, but I was there and, <laughs> and there's, that band blew my mind. There was like 10 of them. They had like two drummers, like two bass, like they just the ridiculous amount of people. And, I, I always, at the time, I was like, these people, like, where did they come from? They're like an all black, greasy, matted hair, playing the loudest stuff in the world. I loved it. And, but City of Caterpillar was in the basement of Java's. I think, and, John booked that, I think John booked that one too. I don't think I ever booked those guys. I could be wrong though, but I feel like he booked that one too. But those, yeah, they, them playing in, in fucking Java's though, that, that, that had been loud as fuck. Yeah, that was a, like a religious experience for me, man. That was, I'd never heard City of Caterpillar. And when I saw them, I was captivated the whole time. You know, regardless, that's, their songs could have been 20 minutes and I would have watched like without doing anything the whole time. I was captivated by that band. Um, and maybe you booked Circle Takes a Square at the Perkins Apartments. Maybe that was Dan Danger. I think he booked that one. I booked them a different time here, but. I'm not remembering any of your shows. I oh, didn't really, but I do I, remember. I didn't realize Circle Takes a Square played here so many times because I booked them, what was that, Skate X Dreams or whatever that skate place was. I booked yeah, that was kind of a weird show. But, yeah. yeah, but they played at the Perkin apartment. I yeah. couldn't make it. I was, I was working and I, was, I so wanted to see that band because I bought the record and I was blown away by it that I drove from my gas station job on a lunch break to Perkins Apartments in my <laughs> Sunoco uniform just to buy the record and the t-shirt and whatever they had. And then I went right back to work and I used to play their record at like six in the morning at full blast when people would be walking, <laughs> getting their coffees and stuff. But, uh, you booked, you booked that American nightmare show at the penny arcade. Yeah. That was huge, man. I mean, that was like huge for me. I, I loved that band. And, uh, I was like, that was right about the time that I started to figure out how stage diving worked, you know? people are like jumping off the stage. So I'm like just going back and forth nonstop, just diving in the crowd the whole time. I think finally somebody got tired of it and I like dove and I somehow like rotated. I I'm like looking and I just see a pair of feet and it landed right on my chest. <laughs> and I was like down for the count. I was on the floor. Everybody picked me up like you. Okay. Yeah. But I was like, okay, I think I'm cool on crowd on stage diving from here yeah. on out. But that show was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I saw those guys a bunch of times, obviously, and they were always, you know, crazy. And that, that was a good show. I mean, uh, you know, it was like them, Striking Distance, uh, Death Threat, Bad Business, who we haven't really talked about a lot, but they were, uh, they were huge. Uh, I mean, when, when you and I say huge, obviously, we're not talking like fucking 
like Rockstar Huge, we're talking about huge for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, absolutely. You know what you know what I mean when I say huge for them, obviously. But that band was 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 important for Rochester, obviously. Absolutely. Um, so, but yeah, I guess we're 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 jumping back a little bit. But yeah, uh, sorry. No, there's nothing wrong with that because you're 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 making me think of uh, good memories from that era too. But what else? So what what was the I guess the whole recorded output for Sakes Alive then? Uh, was I right? Was yeah. it two seven inches or was there more than more than that? It was it was two. Well, I guess technically there was a third release of some sort, but so it was the demo. Then it was Act One, which was with Barrett Records in Syracuse, and those dudes, Josh and Justin Barrett, they were. They were so awesome. They reached out, out to me out of the blue. Like, we want to do a record with you. I think mainly because I had built up enough uh, word of mouth that like, oh, the Six Live Band, they must be pretty cool. So they reached out and we did Act One, which is hands down my favorite release of the three or four Six Alive releases. It's the one I'm probably most proud of of that time. And we toured on that. We were touring constantly. Uh, we did the, I, my goal was to do a tour two to four weeks every quarter. So, and we, we didn't have like, we didn't have like a booking agent. We didn't have like really cool bands that wanted to take us out on tour. It was just, again, a just force of will. I want this band to happen. I want to do cool stuff with it. So I got a van, a 1985 Chevy van, a G20 maybe. The thing could barely do 50 on a highway <laughs> and it had so many problems on those first couple weekends and stuff. But those dudes put out that first record and I think it did okay. It did pretty well. Then this uh, label out of Ohio, is it Akron, Ohio? I think, or Toledo, uh, Cavity Records. And they wanted to put out Act Two. I basically came up with this plan like we're only going to do small releases for the next while and we're going to release them with different labels. So we're kind of spreading out the Sakes Alive name to not just Rochester, New York or whatever. So Act Two didn't, Act Two was kind of like this. And my buddy, um, Jordan Nicometto, who played around that time of Trin City Sunrise and Steel Music Hall, and I don't recall his band's name, but Jordan was getting into recording and he recorded act one for us and he just brought a recording interface his mac like before macbooks were so prevalent like a laptop he brought like a literal computer to our rehearsal space at st paul across from the brewery and he just set up shop in the rehearsal space and he recorded the whole record right there and that that kind of started to turn the gears in my head because when i was at watchman it was like i could do this all day but it's very expensive and then jordan opened my eyes like oh, maybe you don't need to own all the gear in the world to be able to do the recording thing. Maybe you just need a couple of choice pieces of gear to make it happen. So he was a huge catalyst in that. And Jordan is awesome. He was such an awesome dude and very much a supporter. He was very interested in what we were doing. And then he, I recorded Act 2 terribly and then Jordan mixed it for us because I started to figure out that I couldn't really do it on my own. That was the extent of the output. And then when Sakes Alive started to, started to fall apart, to fizzle out, I decided I'm going to keep doing Sakes Alive, but I'm just going to record myself doing it now. And I started to release some singles on Black Numbers. But my skill level wasn't at a point that really could accommodate because I, I had this grand plan. I'm, I'm going to release a track every other week for a total of five tracks. 
And very quickly, I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I can write songs and record them and mix them because I don't really know what I'm doing. But that was, that was crazy. I'm, I'm really uh, amazed that they even accommodated that. And then also Black Numbers released a Kid Dynamite tribute and Sakes Alive had a track on there. Two tracks, I think. They accidentally posted a Sakes, they accidentally, they mistakenly put a Sakes Alive Kid Dynamite cover, um, a different song, because we recorded two in place of one of the bands that was supposed to be on that tribute album which is unfortunate for that band, but we got two tracks on there. <laughs> what songs did you guys do? Like what albums? I'm not as always go with titles as long as like what albums were the songs off of though? Well, News at 11 is the one I know, yeah. which I think is off the first record. Yeah. Second record? Um, I don't remember what the other track was. Yeah. I always like their second album a little bit more. And I like that split. Oh, they, did, they, did a, they did a split with like, what was it, like 88 Fingers Louie or something? 88 like Fingers Louie, man. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. the first record more. Uh, really? Yeah. I mean, I was, I first uh, came across Shorter, Faster, Louder, and I, that blew my mind. I got yeah. it from Fantastic Records. Yep. But the, sh- the, the first one, I don't know, it was a little gnarlier. That's yeah. why I think I liked it a little bit more. Yeah. I think this, the other stuff was just a little faster, right? The, the, the second album and the, the other one that I referenced. I, I, I usually like, like the stuff that's a little faster. So I think that's probably why I like that stuff a little bit more. Yeah. And there's yeah. a funny, there's a funny story that I'd be remiss if I don't tell here. Cause I don't know if I'll get the chance again. Cause I don't know if maybe I'll get Mike on at some point. Cause he's, he's doing some pretty cool stuff with the food in Philly now and stuff. But, um, the first time I met that dude, I threw a party at my house on where I live with Brian Allerton back in the day. I was getting ready to travel across country when I was like 25 and we had this huge, like raging, like Heger or whatever. And uh, the cops ended up showing up and like kicking everybody out. And I was like, yo, if anybody's underage by any chance, like just go hide like somewhere in the basement or some shit. And I'll let you guys know like afterwards, like that the cops are gone or whatever. And I was like wasted too. So I kind of forgot that I even said that, you know what I mean? And I kind of just like probably went outside, smoked a cigarette or whatever I was doing at the time. And it had to have been like 20 or 30 minutes after I said that I went downstairs in the basement to like tap the keg or whatever, because there's probably still beer down there. And I heard something yeah. down there and I was like, yo, somebody's still down here. And I was like, yo, yo, who's down here or whatever, like trying to get the person's attention. And it was, it was Mike. He had been waiting down oh. there the whole time for somebody to tell him that it was cool to come out or whatever. Oh. Maybe it wasn't a half hour, but in my drunk stupor, it seemed like it had been a long time. You know what I mean? So, but uh, yeah, it was just funny. And he was a good dude. You know what I mean? So, and it's, and it's, he's, he's doing like all vegan shit now too, isn't he? And, and uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's a lot of cool shit or whatever. So, and yeah, Mike, uh, those dudes, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to tell any, any unsavory stories, but, but Mike and Tim were in the prime of being um, in Sakes Alive because they were like 20, maybe 21. And now they're on tour playing shows and just living their punk rock dreams. And they were maniacs. And, and Moose was, Moose is, uh, or sorry, yeah, Mike Benlin. Mike Benlin joined the entourage early on. And he was a good influence because he was a maniac as well, but he is such a, he's got such a heart of gold. And I, I think he very, you know, he obviously cares about people, but I think he very much kind of, I don't know, was that foil that they needed. And then eventually we got a second guitar player because Sakes Alive originally was me on guitar, Tim on guitar. And I was like doing the screamy playing guitar thing. We got their other buddy, uh, Kelly, on guitar so I could just focus on vocals 
And those were the three amigos, man. Things got <laughs> crazy with the three of them. Uh, I, uh, and, and Sigs Alive was very much, at the time, I was often referring to it as like my baby. Like, this is my baby. I wrote, I literally did everything. And even those guys wanted to like be a part of the, but I just had a plan, man. And I, so I wrote the songs. I booked the tours. I was you know, soliciting for artwork, getting stuff printed. And I was very much like a tyrant in, the, in that situation. I, I had a plan and I wanted to execute on the plan. And these guys are like my, my soldiers to make it happen. And it became unsustainable. Like number one, I can't do all that stuff by myself, whether I want to or not. Number two, it's not really satisfying for them eventually at a certain point. They wanted to be involved in the band that they're playing in and going on tour and like taking time off from work and being broke to do. Uh, and Dave, we were on Fest 8. We were touring back up. We, we played two fests. And actually within that one year time, we went from playing with really nobody the first time because nobody knew who we were to playing with like, we played with Lords in Louisville. We played with Bridge and Tunnel, Red City Radio, uh, a lot of bands that are uh, worn in red. We did a two week tour with, we played with some really awesome bands in a very quick amount of time. We became notable enough that it was worthwhile. We played with a dude um, from uh, boy sets fire, whatever his band was after that was, sure. yeah, I, yeah I, don't, I don't remember, but it was uh, very much like a Gainesville, no idea type of band, yeah. but that was crazy. Like where, where did, I thought that guy disappeared. That was so cool. But Dave, I, I was being, uh, I was being pissed off for some reason or another with the guys because they were doing whatever they did, and I just got upset with them. And then Dave was like, "Okay, enough is enough. Like I can't take this. I, 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 uh, I can't just be on tour all the time and have to deal under these conditions." So that was like, that's when Six Alive couldn't really sustain itself anymore. And then I tried to turn a new leaf. And I'm only saying this because I want to be as candid and transparent as possible with that particular band. Cause I, th I feel like I owe it to those guys to be as transparent and candid as possible. So I was trying to turn a new leaf towards the end. Dave quit. We're going to try to find a new drummer. And I was trying to invite them more into the situation, but it just became a little, dis a little too dysfunctional at that point. And that's where Sakes Alive, uh, where it needed to end really. Yeah. I guess my, my last question about Sakes Alive before we kind of, jump into the recording stuff to tie everything together um i know from talking to moose obviously one of his favorite places on the road was richmond and i, and I know you've referenced gainesville quite a few times so but like what were some of your favorite places uh to play when you guys did all the touring and stuff oh man um i mean being in gainesville i know i referenced it a bunch but it's it's kind of like a paradise of punk rock it's pretty awesome it's the weather is amazing everybody you could possibly remember from your times playing shows is going to be there uh aaron from marathon uh he he played under solo act attica attica which was super cool for me because i was huge in a marathon for the time they were a band um let's see the worn and red dudes we played trying to think yeah richmond was super cool we played at a place in alston massachusetts called uh the fort fuck awesome and it was it was awesome each and every time we played we played there the first time we played there we were invited to play 
and it was packed. It was a basement and a huge house, punk house, but maybe the next tier up of like gutter punks, like they like kind of took care of the place and it was packed and people lost their minds when we, uh, when every band played. So we played there two other times and each time it was like, this definitely was a fluke. It, it can't be that good again. And then the second time it was that good plus more. And then the third time it was even better. It, it just never stopped being awesome. People are like in this low ceiling basement, they're crowd surfing and going crazy and there's a million people. And that was amazing. Austin was a huge one. We got to play with None More Black, which is Jason Shevchuk, I think is his last name, from Kid Dynamite. We did a, a couple dates or we did a show in Boston. So basically Austin and Boston are pretty much next to each other. We did yeah. a show in None More Black and that was incredible. Uh, that was probably one of the bigger shows we played as Sakes Alive. It was at Great Scott, which was a bar that I think maybe closed a couple years ago, but that was awesome. And I knew Colin from No More Black, I think because I'm, I'm going to guess you booked a show with Go For The Throat at least a couple times. Oh, was Colin in that band? Yes. Yo, he's come up. I got to get a hold of that dude too. He's sorry to, to don't forget what you were going to say, but he's come up on this podcast again recently because I interviewed uh, Greg Pollard and Donnie Mutt who were in a Philadelphia straight edge band, uh, One Up, but they ended up, uh, Donnie oh. played in some other bands. Or uh, Greg, I'm sorry, played in another band. He ended up playing in a band with Colin. So uh, that guy is a fucking character though, man. I would definitely <laughs> catch up with him, man. So dude. how many, did you just play the one show with them or was there other shows? Or? I feel like we played at least two with them. Yeah. yeah. Like I saw Go For The Throat at St. Joe's. Yeah. Which it was a, a super small show, not, not yeah. too notable in any direction. And then he, they played at like an Enterprise Hardcore Fest, I think too. Yeah. yeah. And that dude, did. I saw Go For The Throat. Colin remembered me. They played that Enterprise Fest. Yeah. And they specifically like said, yo, like big shouts to our buddy, Chris, who was at the last time we were played here. So yeah. I've known Colin just because of that one show. And yeah. that's just been a thread that's held, held on yeah. through Sakes Alive, like years and years later. And he started, he got us on a couple shows with them. And we, I don't think we did anything much beyond that, but we played fast and we bump into them. Yeah. And that dude was awesome. That that dude, uh, Paul, I think was the bassist. He was in Kill Your Idols. Yeah, I think so. I can't. That remember dude was awesome. Else, I can't remember who else was in that. Are you talking about from No More Black or from Go for the Throat? Sorry, I'm I'm skipping around. So Paul from No More Black. Okay. I think he was. Uh, he was from Queens. Yeah, that sounds about right. That he would have. Yeah, been I feel like he was in yeah. Kill Your Idols. Yeah, he was playing in No More Black. That dude was yeah. awesome. Uh, yeah, that that was that was a really remarkable show for us. And we played a cool show. We played with Red City Radio. And I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're very much like that gravelly-throated Dillinger 4 melodic type. of. But they are amazing. They are so good. And we caught them right when they were first getting started with Paper and Plastic, which was Vinny from Less Than Jake's label, where he was putting out a million records all at once. And we actually talked to Vinny, reached out to me and was like, hey, we, you know, are you guys putting out a record? maybe we could talk about something. And I was beyond pumped because I was like, holy cow, this is Vinny from Less Than Jake. And he's putting out all these cool records from like the Gainesville type of uh, no idea scene. And then I sent him a couple of songs from the Act Two record and I never heard back from him. <laughs> so maybe he was busy. Maybe I should have taken that as a note, but that was, 
that was probably the most significant times. Worn in red, none more black, fast for sure. Uh, and Jeff from Bridge and Tunnel, I'm bouncing around a lot, but Jeff from Bridge and Tunnel, he was a super nice dude. Pat was the drummer. They were in Ladderman and they were, they were really nice. They were really cool and that we played with a couple times. I, I feel like in South Carolina or Georgia or something. Was the dude from uh, Less Than Jake like the most significant uh, label interest uh, that you had at the time or whatever? Yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah, definitely for sure. Six Alive uh, very much was uh, a small label tier thing, but we did a lot of cool stuff in a short amount of time. Now, I know you're doing the recording stuff now, but how you, you ended up kind of uh, moving around a little bit in between, though. Was that, was that right after Sakes Alive, or, or was, were you back in Rochester for a little bit first? Or? Yeah, I, we were in Rochester. I was dating my, my current girlfriend, who might as well be my wife because we've been together for 15-plus years. But I started dating Laura right at the tail end of I Dreamer, I think. And she persisted through the Sakes Alive stuff. And I was touring a lot. And after Sakes Alive, we started talking about moving to New York or just moving out of Rochester because this might rub some folks wrong, but at the time I was very much not stoked on Rochester. And I was kind of like, it's time to get out of here. Rochester, I feel like uh, nowadays is awesome it's it, I, I feel like there's a lot more motion going on at that time if it, it felt like it was pretty pretty much not a lot going on you weren't booking shows anymore i think j25 i don't think he's here anymore rory so it just seemed like the scene just stopped after you guys even if that maybe was not factual you know i don't know who was actually booking shows at that time so we moved to new york city i lived there for three years and that's when I really started taking the, the studio thing seriously, which is kind of funny because I didn't really have the means to do it. But I was working at a coffee shop in New York. I've worked, you know, up until recording and mixing in the YouTube thing, which is what I do now. I was working just like all those types of jobs all that time. And I got into coffee. I was working at Boulder Coffee. And that was great. That was fantastic. I, I felt like I was actually working a cool place. So I'm, I'm backtracking, but I'm working at Boulder Coffee, instant camaraderie, awesome people that you're surrounded by. So I, then I moved to New York and like, obviously I'm going to get a coffee job because that's what I know. And I didn't really realize to, to how different and competitive New York was to Rochester. I mean, it's like easy to say, yes, of course, it's busier, it's more competitive, but I didn't really realize the coffee scene was going to be as intense as the rest of the city. So I got a job at maybe one of the busiest coffee shops in the city. And at the time I wasn't pumped on it, but it actually was probably the best uh, working education I've ever had in my working career. It was a place called Birch Coffee and they have like a million locations in the city now but they were entirely focused on customer service. And I think that really served me well. I think number one, moving to New York and not really knowing anybody. At the time I thought I knew a couple of people, this I'll at least like be able to develop a, f- a group of friends to hang out with. Like I knew Matt Redleader who put out the marathon stuff. Yeah. I knew Matt, I knew Barry who did generic insight radio which was uh, an early form of podcast or radio or whatever. I knew a couple people, but 
the thing I didn't really anticipate is that people are busy in New York all the time. Everything that you need to do, doing your laundry, grocery shopping, everything really requires a 40 minute train ride at a minimum to get done. So I didn't really realize that. So I was very isolated. I'm working a job that I didn't love at the time because it was so busy. It was so customer service oriented. But now looking backwards, my whole life is customer service. And I'm really glad that I got to work under those guys because their entire focus was whatever the customer needs from us, we're going to deliver. Whatever we got to do to make it right, we're going to do it. And I thought, I think that's a really good ethos. I eventually got an internship at a studio for about three months uh, called Flux Studio because the, because the dude who owns the studio kind of was becoming an internet personality as a producer. And I thought, this guy looks like he's awesome. I should, I should kind of pick his brain. So I reached out to him and he said, sure, come by the studio. I hung out for 15 minutes and he was like, you should talk to the manager and see if you can get an internship because there was a dude who was managing the place for Fab, who is the producer. So I hung out there for three months until I couldn't handle working 40 hours a week. And my last two days out of the week, I was interning eight hours a day. And that's no fault of theirs. That was my own fault of mismanaging my time. But that gave me the bug enough like, okay, I'm going to start mixing for people. And the first record that I attempted to mix was for Oscar Rodriguez, who was from Nakatomi Plaza. He had a band called No Way. And I reached out to him and he sent me like a song just for like, I said, hey, you know, can I, can I mix something a year? So he sent me a song and maybe I did okay with it. So he's like, oh, maybe you want to mix the rest of the EP. And I said, sure. How much do you want? Okay, a hundred bucks, which I, which to him should have been a red flag because he, he definitely knew a hundred bucks didn't make sense for the transaction, but he said, okay. And then I proceeded to do the worst job possible at trying to deliver an EP to the point where they stopped responding to me. <laughs> so, so that was like pretty harsh. And I'm literally like, I have a speaker, a mono speaker and a laptop. And I'm sitting at like a card table in my bedroom in uh, Queens trying to mix this record. <laughs> And, uh, but he was, you know, he was as gracious as he could be about, I delivered every song, even though they weren't in the least bit interested in having me mix it at that point. But I was like, I got to do it. And then the second record I mixed while living in New York was uh, with this band, The Reveling, which is Sean Morris uh, and a bunch of dudes from New York. They play very much pop punk, but not in that Blink-182 sort of way. I think more in a no idea sort of way. They were on Black Numbers and they, they let me record. I recorded their album uh, in bits and pieces and mixed it. And Kyle Chapman released their record under Farewell Party Records. And it was a cool splatter print. I facilitated. I, I helped them connect with Kyle. And that was awesome. That was like my first successful record that I mixed and recorded. And that was, that was huge. And that really, that really uh, gave me the motivation to keep going and keep learning. So that was when you were still in New York City, you were doing that? Or was that when you were already yeah. back? That was yeah, I was still in New York, um, both for No Way and The Reveling. And at that point, I think I was done with The Reveling. And Laura and I were just at a point where we had been there for three years. It was really probably like the second half of those three years that I started uh, sparingly getting into recording and mixing for other bands. I also got a gig for uh, like a, 
a producer of some sort from Craigslist of all places to edit vocals and stuff, which was pretty crazy. This dude was doing, he was doing like spots for Trident and Barclays and all these crazy campaigns. And he was producing for artists too. And he threw me a little work as like a, a personal assistant or something. That was pretty cool. So I'm all doing this from headphones and a laptop and a single speaker. And then we moved back to Rochester at the tail end of three years because New York is cool. And I think it was a really important time in my life to straighten out and kind of decide on a path and start making moves on that path. But it's, it's really tiring to live in those conditions. I feel like everybody under 18 under 20, maybe everybody under 20 who doesn't know what they want to do with their life should move to New York and do like doing time, like working, like being drafted to the military should spend a minimum of three years in New York and then get the hell out of there. Um, Unless, unless you're the type of person who gravitates towards that hustle and bustle, but that like will set someone straight. I truly believe and work at the busiest coffee shop in the city too. (laughs) So you kind of referenced it. Like, are you doing the recording and YouTube thing like full time now then? Or is it like, yeah. Like how long? Yeah. You- Re- Go ahead. Recording isn't really what I do anymore. I mix. I, I record with Ben Kruger. That's yeah. I, when I moved back to Rochester, I started recording with, uh, it was great moving back to Rochester because it was like a breath of fresh air. Uh, I really didn't have a friend network at all through New York city. And it was just Laura and I, my girlfriend, and that was it. Laura had Laura was more uh, developed more personal connections than I did. Moving back to Rochester, it was like nothing had changed um, in terms of my personal relationships and connections and friendships. So, coming back to Rochester, I moved in. We moved into the Shark Tank, which is where Pat Stefano and Declan Ryan and uh, Joe Rosetto was another roommate. They lived there, so. I started recording bands in that house and that really, really just things started taking off on the recording front once I got back to Rochester and I had my entire mix set up, like set up in our bedroom there and I'm mixing in our bedroom. And one dude, Guy Higgins, who used to be in the sweatshop boys, he, he was an early, uh, he was married to, I think he's married to, a class friend of mine from elementary school, uh, Ronnie McClive, who owns the poutine truck. He's married to Ronnie. He's making music of his own. And we start to pal around again. And I start recording his album for uh, a band that he had called Edge of Jupiter. That's really weird. Let me cut you off for a second. My girlfriend. Yeah, go for it. My girlfriend's best friend's husband's Neil from that band. Yes, yeah, that's my awesome. Best friend is his wife, uh, Amy. So yeah, it's, that's a small world. Once you started mentioning Sweatshop Boys, I had a feeling where you're going with that. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry, go on where you were going from there. Nope. Oh, man. That's all good. Just I'm living at that house, the Shark Tank. I'm recording bands. I uh, I came up with this whole idea of like, hey, I'm putting together a compilation. You know, I'm just going to charge you 50 bucks for the entire recording mix, everything. Uh, you just got to come to the house, and we're going to record in like a single day, a couple of hours. So I recorded about seven bands. Some of them were Secret Pizza, which Tim Avery and Gianna. And uh, some of those folks were in that band. Sleepwalk Parade, which was this dude, Aaron Salentano, that I went to high school with. That was his band. Tommy Reese, who was a Rondequake kid. Excuse me, a Rondequake kid. Uh, 
was it pink elephants? Is that what they were called? They were kind of like a, a post-punk type of thing. I'm doing that. I'm doing the Edge of Jupiter record. And I don't know, it seems to be gaining momentum, at least good enough for me to say like, all right, this maybe could be a thing I could do, even though I didn't have a studio or anything. But then we moved to Montreal for three months. <laughs> so I kind of put a damper on all that. And I, uh, I guess kind of just jump, tell me that, tell me a quick backstory of that, I guess, or whatever you were telling, you were telling me before the interview, but just kind of to put everything together here. Yeah. Uh, Laura and I, when we moved back from New York to Rochester, you know, you're living in such uh, uh, hustling conditions. When we moved back to Rochester, it felt like time just came to a halt. Like nothing had changed in Rochester. And in a lot of ways, it was good because I could pick up back up with friendships and creative relationships and stuff. But when we came back on the train at like the St. Paul area, it felt like it felt like our entire world just came to a grinding halt. And that was, that was weird just because it's a different texture of life. But we were like, we're going to get out of Rochester as quick as we can because we don't know if this is really for us. So we, Laura had a pen pal, Kate, since grade school, who is from not necessarily Montreal, but uh, Richmond, Quebec. And Laura had always been enamored with Montreal. So we are like, what if we try to move to Canada? Which sounds really ridiculous and the type of thing you say when the person that you voted for didn't get into office. But we're like, all right. So we started Googling and researching. And this is, we moved to New York. I know these timelines. So we moved to New York from 2011 to 2014. We get back in 2014, maybe 2015, we, we try to move to Montreal. And we start Googling about moving to Canada and the options are pretty slim. It's like you get a job like working in the mines up in Northern Canada or you're a doctor or, you know, very, very specific conditions. But we said, oh, this is stupid. I bet it'll be a lot easier once we're living there to try to figure out how to, how to like be able to live here permanently. So we, we decided to take a French conversation course at Concordia University, which was a three-month thing. We moved there. We got to live with my buddy, Dave Adams, who is a guitar player from a band called Dig It Up, which is, was an amazing band from Montreal. And now some of our Canada shows the sake, that Sakes Alive played were really memorable, specifically because of Dig It Up. And his sister let us live with her. And, you know, we paid rent for three months and we were taking our French conversation course. You can't technically work, so we're not working. I'm mixing records at the kitchen table from my headphones, still trying to make that happen while I'm in Canada. Um, and that was just the plan. We're going to live in Canada. But after three months of not working, <laughs> not earning any money, I was like, well, maybe we got to go back home. So we went back home. And at that point, that was 2015, 2016, Rochester really like, really cemented in my mind at that point because things seemed like the city was investing in itself. Entrepreneurs are investing in, in opening restaurants and bars and stuff. It's like, oh, there's like movement finally from, from my very narrow point of view. So um, like, what are you, what, what's the whole, what are you doing with YouTube and stuff? And I guess. So at that point, I'm recording. I probably should fill in more. I, I'm, let me know if I'm going too far with all this, all right, but. Fine. 
all these details are starting to percolate in my mind. We moved back to Rochester and I'm like recording out of the St. Paul rehearsal spaces. Uh, It's pretty janky. And then this dude, Brian McCormick, who ended up moving into the shark tank right at the tail end where Laura and I moved out to get our own place. He starts setting up a, like a church venue thing on Mount Hope called the pillar. And he showed me around the place once or twice. And he's like, we have like a million office spaces. We don't have any way to fill them. Do you want to start working out of, you know, do you want to pay rent and work out of here? So I started working out of Mount Hope at the pillar and recording bands in the pillar space. So I recorded like a Nate Derby's band. It was like a side thing other than such gold. It was called uh, Deas with Travis Rankin um, and a few other dudes. I recorded a song or two with Drew's. They did a cover song of the Stone Roses that we recorded there. Uh, Kyle Waldron and his band Barbarossa, uh, a later uh, version of it. We recorded a bunch of his stuff there. That was really cool. And then Brian Moore, who recorded the I Dreamer stuff a lifetime ago. Somehow we connected. We connected. Uh, I was working at a coffee shop in Rochester at that time still. And Brian would come into the coffee shop and we struck up a conversation a little bit about audio. And he was like, well, you, why don't you come by the studio? At which point he has Red Booth Studio um, at Mount Reed right off of Mount Reed in the city. So I go and he's just like, hey, like, do you want to be the nighttime dude who records here? And that was pretty significant for me because up until that point, it was just me with my laptop trying to make it look the best I could and sound the best I could. And that was pretty significant to me because Brian was in Seven Head Division, which was a pretty prolific band. And he was a very amazing musician and recording engineer. He's got his own spot and he's basically opening the door and saying, you're good enough. You want to work out of here? And that was awesome. That, that meant a lot to me. And Brian's uh, definitely one of my favorite people ever. So I started doing the nighttime thing out of there. So I, I would come in after his whole nine to five day and record bands. I recorded Fortunato. I recorded, uh, actually I picked back up on the day of stuff at Red Booth from the pillar to Red Booth. I recorded a few hardcore things as well. I did the whole Benny first record there. That was awesome. And then eventually I ended up moving out of Red Booth because I got like a full-time management job at the coffee shop I was working. And I just wasn't sure if recording was really going to work out in terms of an actual career, especially with everybody being able to record at home. So I, I did the coffee shop thing. Till I couldn't, till I, I felt like it wasn't a good fit for me anymore. And then I ended up in this space of 12 corners and I started a blog at the tail end of the coffee shop thing, which was all about audio production and this particular application for recording, which is Logic Pro. That was totally a hobby thing that I didn't, I wasn't sure if anybody would care. And it actually has done pretty okay for itself. And now that's the thing I do each week. I post videos every week. I mix music. I don't really record except for my own personal projects. And I mean, that's like my job, but YouTube isn't really my job. It's, uh, I I sell things outside of YouTube and that's my job. Um, And the YouTube is really um, a a marketing mechanism for that. But 
I, I put all of my effort into crafting the best tutorials I can for people who are home musicians or producers or whatever, so they can deliver the best music they can with what they got. How did all the Benny stuff come about? Did he come to you or, or did you go to him to start doing all that? I had a Ben a lifetime ago when I was at the St. Paul spaces. I was vaguely aware of Ben being a rapper because he was in Like Wolves. And I was vaguely aware that he was rapping and I invited him to record a, a song for a comp that I was trying to put together. Again, another like, I'll record your, your stuff for cheap just so I could get some uh, recording experience was really the, the point of it. We did a song called Moccasin Headwalk, which was entirely Ben. It was like he had a sample, he rapped on it. I mixed it the best I could at the time. Then I invited him to record a song with Joe Clark from Drew's and my buddy Kurt Indovina, who lives in San Francisco now, but he played piano. And we cobbled together a song that was pretty awesome, actually. I got I to gotta look up on Apple Music because I don't remember the name of it. I was pretty into what Ben was trying to accomplish with, with rapping. I thought it was super cool. I thought he was super proficient. Uh, it's important to note that I had no, really no history with hip hop at all. Yeah, that was, I, that was one. Yeah, when he told me you were doing it, I was like, holy, I was like, holy shit. I, I was kind of surprised, you know, because like I never knew you, you were, I never pegged you to be involved with that at all, obviously, you know, so. Yeah, that's because I, I was not in the least bit interested in hip hop yeah. <laughs> when, I was get, when I was coming up. But there were certain artists that I thought were pretty cool. Oh, the song that I did with Joe Clark and Ben and Kurt was called Give Thanks, which is pretty cool. Joe Clark did all this like weird guitar stuff and it, it's kind of spooky. It's cool. And I did another song with Ben, but I thought it was so cool that Ben was rapping and I thought he was pretty good at it. I mean, who am I to judge? But to me, it seemed really good. So I was like, what if I started writing music with Ben? That would be cool. And I, I wanted to give a try at producing more than just recording, but, which is really funny because I had no working knowledge of hip hop at all. And then we wrote another song called Lately Out of the Pillar Space. And Ben was always pretty hesitant because him and the archaeologist was the dude he was writing a lot with at the time. They had a good thing going. And I feel like Ben didn't really want to like mess up that, re that working relationship. Then Arch started to do other things. I think mainly build pedals because he was doing really well with that. So Ben eventually started coming around to the idea of hanging out and writing with me. And that's how we, we worked on All Good, the, the LP that we did, like over a year and a half, two years. Every, every week we got together, like every Tuesday. And then it was every Tuesday, Thursday, and then I think three days a week. And we were just chipping away at this album, which was my best interpretation of hip-hop of what I knew at the time, which was not much. But I always, had a, I always was really into Miss, Missy Elliott. That, I would say, was a significant influence on me of the little hip-hop I was familiar with. I was like, this lady is awesome. She yeah. is weird. And that always is the type of thing I'm, in, I'm attracted to is weird original stuff. If I'm not mistaken, and I'm sure Ben will be listening to this and he'll, he'll know too, I want to say one of the Missy Elliott videos, I don't know if it was her, but somebody in there is wearing a Code 13 uh, t-shirt. I don't know if you remember that band. They were like a raging like hardcore band from uh, Minneapolis. Vaguely. Felix Havoc was their vocalist. 
Uh, yeah, I'm sure if you Google it, it'll come up. But um, were they the kind of um, were they the kind of band that maybe caused a ruckus at shows? Or am I maybe. thinking they of a different? Like, here. They band. never played Rochester. They they were like just like a crazy like Minneapolis like crusty like thrash hardcore oh. fast, fast band. They were they were pretty much on his record, Havoc Records. Oh, but okay. You, you just say Missy Ellett makes me think of it. Any, pretty much anything anybody says usually makes my brain scatter into some sort of connection to hardcore punk or whatever, you know? Yeah, of course. So, is there anything else coming up or that you're doing? I, I, I guess you told me when I talked to you beforehand that, that Benny's like the most latest project you have going on with like recording and stuff. Are, are there any other things that you're, you're trying to do with it? Or are you more just kind of sticking to doing like the, the logic and just writing your own stuff? Yeah. Um, the logic website, uh, Ben, Ben and I have been, we're right in the middle of, writing another record called Haunted Mansions, which he actually mentioned on the podcast when he was on and we're just chipping away at it. He's, you know, he's got like a family now and stuff. So he's a bit, and he's got an action, he's got a career. So he's, he's a little busier than he was the first time around. I'm busier, but we're chipping away at that. Uh, we're already planning on a third album, but let's, we'll get the second one in the can first before we get too far ahead of ourselves. But Haunted Mansions is very much a, much more sophisticated, I think, in terms of songwriting. Uh, I'm very much more familiar with hip hop production and like 808s and drums and how that stuff works actually this time around. Uh, and much more into that sort of thing, it, that style of music than I was the first time around. So I would say that's the most significant thing creatively. Yeah. I feel like I try to do the best I could to touch on all the other projects you've been involved in over the years. And we, we talked about like Rochester hardcore. Is, is there anything else that, that we didn't touch on that you would, you would have wanted to uh, have in a, in a podcast that, that you're uh, being interviewed on, I guess. Yeah, dude. Cause the, the coolest band I ever was in was for like two months and it was with uh, Rob Antonucci, uh, Chris Brown, Tyler Farron and Kelly Marcano. It was called all doctors. I think that was the working title. And we rehearsed in Kelly Marcano's bedroom wherever he lived at the time for a couple months. And it was awesome. It was gnarly. Uh, And Kelly Kelly sang. Tyler obviously played drums. And then, you know, I played bass. And I was really stoked. Also super intimidated because I didn't know if I could keep up with those dudes. Uh, And it was really angular, screamy stuff. They, uh, They decided... It was kind of like the Achilles before the Achilles. I don't know if I, I ha, I'm at liberty to say that sort of statement, but, but it was right before Achilles, uh, before they shifted gears because they weren't seeing eye to eye creatively. So the band sort of dissipated. But that, I was so pumped on. That was my favorite. I think my favorite hardcore thing I've done in Rochester or anywhere for that matter. Yeah, you had mentioned that, that pre-interview and I got to definitely uh, mention that to Nooch next time I talk yeah. to him. I guess I do hear some uh, some 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 movement downstairs. So, uh, is there any other uh, shout-outs or plugs you want to uh, throw out before uh, we end the uh, interview? I guess. Yeah, man. I uh, you know throughout all that history, um, Pat Stefano is a significant part. Like I didn't mention him at all, but Pat Stefano is a friend from high school that was friends with Kevin and Mike and I. And he's persisted through all that. He was a huge person in, you know, Rochester hardcore, huge in like that. He was always there. He was always participating. He always wanted to be involved in a part of things. He was a great photographer. He is a great photographer. I don't mean to put that in past tense. Uh, 
and Pat was there for all the sakes alive, Verona, all that stuff, documenting it. I mean, he probably has so many photos of me and all those experiences. And he is a tremendous friend and just, he, he's definitely worth a shout out more than once. And I wish I thought to, to say that throughout all of this. Stefano's definitely a good dude. And he's on my list of people to, to interview eventually. He, there's a few people that, that, uh, either they want to do the interview in person or I want to do the interview in person. So he's, he's on that list of, of people. So, uh, once I get all the equipment, the, the fancy equipment that you're using right now, pretty much, uh, to do more like in-person type stuff and, and, you know, uh, COVID willing, obviously we'll yeah. be doing stuff like that. Um, but I guess any other, uh, any other shout outs or closing, uh, comments? I do my girlfriend too, Laura Holmesy. She's been there through it all. Uh, and she's amazing and you know probably pat and her have been the most <laughs> been the biggest rocks in my creative life so that's that yeah that's all the shout outs i got all right i guess that's a good way to end episode 53 i want to thank chris for doing the interview as always shout out to rob antonucci greg Benoit, and jim Byrne for all the help with the podcast thanks to my family for all the never-ending support check us out on the web at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com give us a follow on instagram uh, see everyone real soon and stay safe.